Hello everybody, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Rob Henderson. He's a PhD graduate from the University of Cambridge, a US Air Force veteran, and an author. The people who make the rules are not the ones impacted by the rules. Luxury beliefs are ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower class. And they're everywhere. Expect to learn Rob's opinion on the recent catastrophes in American higher education, why luxury beliefs have become more common than ever before, what Rob learned during his journey through all class levels, what it's like to truly be in poverty, Rob's advice for how people can become better readers, and much more. Rob happens to be one of the smartest people on the internet. I love his Twitter. I love his Substack. He's always deep in the research, finding cool stuff about social psychology or human nature or anthropology or evolution or whatever. And uh, he's brilliant. And I will continue to bring him on the show until the sun engulfs the earth because I like him and I hope that you do too. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. Honestly, the difference in the quality of your life when you have a world-class backpack is pretty hard to describe. Nomatic make the most functional, durable, and innovative backpacks, bags, luggage, and accessories that I've ever used. Their 20-liter travel pack and carry-on classic are absolute game changers. The amount of thought that they've put into every pouch and zipper is incredible. They're beautifully designed and not over-engineered and will literally last you a lifetime because they've got a lifetime guarantee. So if it breaks at any point, they'll give you a new one. They also offer free shipping on orders over $49 in the contiguous United States. And if you don't love your purchase, you can return or exchange your item 30 days after you've received it for any reason. Nomatic is offering Modern Wisdom listeners 20% off their first purchase when they go to nomatic.com slash modernwisdom and use the code modernwisdom at checkout. That's nomatic.com slash modernwisdom and modernwisdom at checkout. If you keep getting tons of spam phone calls and have an inbox that's filled with junk, your information might be spread all over the internet, which is pretty terrifying to think about. This is why I've partnered with Incogni. Incogni help prevent scam attacks by automatically opting you out of shady databases. They scrape the entire internet to make sure that your name is taken off dozens of data broker lists so that your phone will become strangely quiet and your inbox will no longer feel like a hornet's nest. You can cancel at any time, plus they offer a free 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it completely risk-free, use it for 29 days, and if you do not like it for any reason, they will give you your money back. Right now, you can get a 60% discount off their annual plan by going to incogni.com slash modernwisdom and using the code modernwisdom at checkout. That's I-N-C-O-G-N-I dot com slash modernwisdom and modernwisdom at checkout. But now, ladies 
and gentlemen, please welcome Rob Henderson. What do you make of the last few months of fallout from Yale and Harvard and such? I mean, yeah, we saw that big uh, testimonial from the presidents. Yeah, it was, it was Harvard, MIT, Penn. Uh, I mean, I wasn't surprised by it. I mean, a lot of people, I think, are finally fully realizing they're coming to their senses. People have been saying this for a while now. Uh, oh, you know, eventually the pendulum will swing back and people will finally figure out what's really going on in these institutions and this sort of ideology that's been spilling out of the universities. And now I think they finally are actually truly realizing it. But yeah, I saw the kind of the birth of what a lot of people call wokeness uh, in 2015 when I arrived on campus at Yale. And that was my first semester. I saw what was happening there. And yeah, I mean, I think you can draw a straight line from some of those events in 2015 to what we're seeing now. And yeah, it's been really ugly, but, you know, kind of kind of amusing, you know, from my perspective, because I, you know, I was one of the I'd like to think that I was one of the sort of early uh, observers and people who could recognize what was occurring. And then later on, you know, so Jordan Peterson was was another and and there have been other critics of higher ed and especially these elite universities. Um, but yeah, it's been uh, really, really amusing and 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 also sort of disheartening to, to see it. It's this this sort of odd blend of fatalism, schadenfreude, (laughs) nihilism, sort of pleasure, displeasure, like ick, pity. Uh, It's a real concatenation of of things. And obviously we've got a a couple of mutual friends that have either been directly or tangentially involved. Mm -hmm. Vincent, uh, our mutual friend, I managed to get removed from a higher education institution (laughs) uh, because of him appearing on this podcast. Carol Hooven, uh, who is a really good mutual friend, um, has kind of been thrust into the middle of this. She told me that she basically felt like she'd been used like a a football. and for the people who know who Carol is, she went on Rogan. I think she cried like six times on Joe's show. She cried at least three times on mine. We went for breakfast. I'm pretty sure she cried like three times at breakfast. She's just a very sort of emotional yeah. person. She is, she is, she's really sort of feeling this. And yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, you realize in a sort of proxy fucking battle like this, the people that are useful political footballs to be kicked around often mm-hmm. end up paying a pretty high price and no one ever thinks about them mm-hmm. because you're like, oh no, but you're, you know, you're a flaming warrior for free speech or whatever. And you go, well, yeah, but I didn't ask to be. Yeah. Yeah. Very few people want to be fired. I mean, it's I mean, a lot of people may not be familiar with just how difficult it is to get an academic job in the first place. I mean, I, you know, I'm friends with Vincent. I saw, I mean, he was hustling hard and he had a very impressive academic record and no one wants to be in that position. I think the their their critics or their detractors say like, oh, you know, oh, poor me with your cancel culture. And now look at you going on all these podcasts and playing up your victimhood and all of this. But that's not what it is. I think it's for some people, it's just a consolation that, well, I lost my dream job. At the very least, I can sort of communicate. Well, these horrible salvage experiences. fucking something. Exactly. And yeah, I was observing all of this from afar. I mean, one thing that I've pointed out before is that for every like public academic cancellation you see, there are probably five to 10 others that are not covered in the media. Most people actually don't enjoy the limelight that much, especially academics who tend to be kind of weird nerds with their obscure niche interests. They just want to keep their head down, do their research, be left alone. And then suddenly they are accused of X, Y, or Z, and they just want to silently, you know, uh, have it blow over. 
Um, and that's like the sort of modal case. That's the usual case. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, uh, you, I, we can see it now that uh, finally people are recognizing that there's a, there's a serious issue. I didn't even want to, an academic job. I mean, by the time I was probably about halfway through my PhD, I saw what was happening. I remember, uh, yeah, I would have very contentious discussions with other PhD students and postdocs and kind of early career researchers. And I would tell them like, I don't think that, you know, if you color outside the lines, if you are an independent thinker, it will be very difficult for you to get a sort of typical tenure track academic job now. Um, not impossible, but just much harder than it would have been maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And people would say, oh, no, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And now, you know, four, four plus years later, I'm seeing like some of those friends are having difficulty. Some of them have been hired and fired by now. Oh, I mean, wow. it's been, you know, I've seen the whole the whole spectrum of, of outcomes. Some of them have successfully obtained jobs and just, you know, keep their mouth shut. But for me, I just that wasn't what I thought academia was going to be like. Yeah, um, I thought it was going to be you know, this little kind of contained bubble, you know, the, I guess some people call it the ivory tower, right? Where you can live that life of the mind and communicate interesting ideas and debate and disagree, but still sort of inch your way towards the truth, or at least inch your way, inch your way towards interesting ideas. But, you know, that's interestingly happening more on places like podcasts and Substack and uh, alternate sort of parallel institutions. Yeah, it's fascinating to think uh, as well about I guess soft cancellation. So I had mm -hmm. Ricky Schlott on, who co-authored mm -hmm. The Cancelling of the American Mind with Greg Lukianoff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, she was talking about all of the different ways that people kind of get soft cancelled. And it's it's just not being invited to the end of your party. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's people sitting in different locations to you. I think she went to maybe NYU Stern. And um, mm. she was hiding Jordan Peterson books under her bed, um, you know, like fucking Anne Frank in the attic, that philosophical <laughs> Anne Frank. Um, and she was saying that, you know, it's, it, there's lots of um, sort of ideological shit tests, mm. she called them, which I thought was a really great name. Mm. Uh, you know, what do you think about Ben Shapiro? Mm. You know, just like fucking throw that hand grenade into the room and see if anyone pipes mm. up and uh, or doesn't pipe up that was something that i learned when i was in grad school was does anyone just remain silent and not say oh he's so he's an evil right wing whatever right right if they just kind of keep their head down and don't say anything you know i sort of oh i observed that silence like, is yeah. compliance or <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah. silence is violence or yeah yeah, yeah whatever, whatever it yeah. is what about the um you had this interesting idea about the hidden hierarchies of the harvard extension school thing yeah yeah well i saw that with you know i was i was you know observing what was occurring on Twitter slash X with Christopher Rufo, who was one of the sort of architects of uh, pointing out and removing the the Harvard professor after her comments about, you know, kind of condoning anti-Semitism on campus and then <laughs> discovering her plagiarism and all of this. But, you know, after, after he, you know, he was perceived to be successful. I mean, she was, she was ousted. She was pressured to resign and she did. All of these professors at elite universities and all of these, you know, these you know, university supporting members of the chattering class were saying, oh, Christopher Rufo got a degree from the Harvard Extension School. And, you know, did, are people aware that that's not the real Harvard? And people do people understand that that's not typically what we think of as uh, a real graduate studies degree at a master. It's not a real master's degree from Harvard. Uh, it's, you know, they, they just wanted people to be very aware that this 
you know, this this sort of outsider, this pleb who got this degree from this <laughs> extension school. He's not a real academic. He's not a real serious thinker. Yeah, he's written books. Yes, he works at a at a very prominent think tank. And yes, he's like very successful in the real world. But he has his degree, for, which is sort of getting things backwards, right? You want the degree um, in order to signify that you're capable in the real world. But, you know, they have the, oh, this guy's capable in the real world. But now they're looking at the, the, de- the degree as if it's, it's somehow, um, it's fraudulent and therefore this, uh, nullifies all of his. That's indicative of his yeah. real value. Exactly. Yeah, they're they're placing his value on the the educational credential rather than uh, on his effectiveness in in his life and in his career. So, you know, I'm watching this and I'm thinking like, yeah, this is exactly. I mean, I'm I'm I've seen this you know since entering college, since entering higher ed, this strange status anxiety, particularly among people who attend these kind of institutions. I mean, the people who were pointing this out about Rufo's degree were professors or graduates of whatever, Harvard or Oberlin or Stanford, whatever, like these these kinds of places. People that, that knew the language, yes. they understood what an extension school was. Yes, exactly. And And it's just amazing to me that Harvard even has this program in the first place because it relies on that duplicitous game of... Uh, you know, if you're if you're a what a member of the unwashed masses and you go to the Harvard Extension School website, it actually says we are Harvard. You will have the Harvard degree. You can put it. It even says something like you'll have the. You know, you'll be able to put Harvard on your resume. This yes. is on the official yes, website. Yes. Yes. Um, while simultaneously communicating the coded message to everyone else at Harvard and everyone else in this sort of rarefied segment of society that, you know, we have to do that. You know, we have yeah. to put that on the website, yeah. but it's not really Harvard. You're not on the main stage. You're it's kind of on the second stage in the festival. It's like the overflow yeah. room. Why would, like, it's just, it shocks me that they're willing to take the reputational hit to operate a degree mill. I mean, to me, it's just very, like, tawdry. Like, it's almost like, you know, I have this, maybe this judgmental attitude. I'm like, this is, like, very kind of vulgar that you guys would even do this in the first place, that you're playing this game. And, yeah, I thought it was very, yeah, very ugly the way that they were they were pointing this out about Rufo. And it also ended up backfiring, I think, because they felt this sort of, this faction of cultural elites and these legacy institutions felt threatened. They felt like they had received an L. And so they had to lash out and yeah. get back at him. Well, it's the same as, you know, someone does something to you, a, a really cutting jibe, and you're like, uh, uh, shit shoes. Like, it's just, <laughs> you know, it's the only thing yeah, that yeah. you're like, you're fucking just grabbling at something. I remember once there was this guy, it's so funny, there was this uh, dude stood on the front door of a nightclub complaining mm-hmm. about the fact that he couldn't get in. And he just kept on chirping and kept on chirping and kept on chirping. And I'd was feeling particularly pissy that day or whatever. So I said something back to him. And I've got like two or three six foot four Geordie gorillas mm. either side of me that are working. And I'm busy trying to organize clipboards or something else. And he couldn't think of anything to do. So I had a, a necklace on of some kind, like on the outside of a t-shirt. And he sort of reached forward and like grabbed, grabbed that. And like, that was the one thing. And then sort of sc- scuttled off. And I was like, <laughs> bro, yeah. like my... 35 pound like fashion net necklace isn't a big deal but just that that's the one thing and it's kind of the same as Christopher Rufo's like w w w w extension school like yeah. it's not you're not part of the real chattering classes yeah yeah that's exactly yeah it was a very like short-sighted and and ultimately i think it was damaging to them of course. oh anyone yeah. else that's got that degree yeah. or is thinking about going to that place is like oh well they said that ultimately when the rubber meets the road, Chris Rufo's like just one of the fucking mm. like peasants, the same as the rest of us. Right. So maybe I shouldn't think about Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying that that anyone who might want to apply for the Harvard Extension School will see that and so they'll have fewer applicants. 
you know, the institution will ultimately be less profitable. I didn't even think about that Definitely part. Definitely less prestigious. I was, I was thinking more on the reputation end of it rather than the sort of economic end. But yeah, this, this idea that, um, that people will observe. I mean, I thought it was a, an error for two reasons. One was that it was, most people don't like snobs, right? So they see this and they just feel like icky about it, that mm -hmm. they're even pointing this out in the first place or that they think that they're somehow superior. Um, they don't like that attitude. And then the second was that uh, it, to me, it kind of exposed the the hollowness of the egalitarian dogma, the supposed egalitarian dogma of elite academia that, you know, oh, we're all for equity and, you know, DEI or whatever it is that we're so accepting and tolerant and welcoming. Mm. Uh, but by the way, like, you know, your, your aristocratic title is fraudulent and you're a fake. And, you know, so, you know, I, I was texting a friend earlier about this. He's, he's actually a grad student at Harvard. And I was like, my impression of this was basically like, the attitude at elite universities is everyone is equal, but some people are less equal than others, right? It's a sort so of a, a spin on on the the, uh, the animal farm idea. We're all equal, yeah. but some people well, are more you had, equal. You had that George Orwell quote. Yeah. Um, you said how in The Road to Wigan Pier, George Orwell's explaining how upper class snobs, while theoretically pining for a classless society, cling like glue to their miserable fragments of social prestige. I love that. Yeah, I love that line. I mean, the whole, yeah, the, the book is great. Orwell was so astute in his analysis of class but that was just yeah i mean this has been going on for you know 100 years now and that was the first thing that came to mind when i was seeing this that you know these these supposedly open-minded tolerant welcoming people were suddenly pointing out that he got a degree from from the institution right like it's your website it's like it's you your got over the your... you got over the bar that everybody asked for but you kind of landed in an awkward place on the crash mat yeah you know and, and yeah you're so right it's this and this is why fundamentally I think that people are so skeptical and critical mm -hmm. of anyone who proselytizes about their morality or how ethical or how caring they are publicly. Yeah. Because you go, what are you covering up for? I don't believe <laughs> that you actually think that. And sure enough, when the gloves are off and you see someone in a little bit of pressure or mm. receiving a little bit of heat, where do they go? Yeah. Well, all of the inclusivity and egalitarianism and care for the beauty of academia overall all of that's out the window. Yeah. Yeah. When the pressure's on, right? When people feel threatened, when they feel in a sense of sort of emotional intensity, a lot of negative emotion, suddenly, you know, the mask slips and you can see yeah, what they the really Toys think are out of people. the pram. They're just as, and, you know, this is the concern that people had all along. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's what we thought you were like. We thought that you were highfalutin, not actually caring, yeah. adrenochrome drinking, long hooded nose, pentagram dancing <laughs> like dickheads. Yeah. And sure enough, your your mask has slipped. So I mean, this you've got your brand new book out, which everyone can go and buy right now. You should go and buy it this very second. We haven't ever spoken about this because pretty much since I've known you, at some point you've been working on your memoir, Troubled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Luxury beliefs. Yeah. That is a kind of uh, example of luxury belief, although it's not patient zero. How do you explain to my audience that hasn't yet heard you talk about a topic that you've repopularized? Mm. How do you explain luxury beliefs? Right. Luxury beliefs are ideas and opinions that confer status on the affluent while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. And a core component of a luxury belief is that the believer is often sheltered from the consequences of his or her belief. Um, and, you know, we can get into specific examples, but yeah, I like this one that we've been sort of touching on this snobbish attitude about higher ed and how, yeah, so on the one hand, I mean, you're, you, when, when people are pointing out that this school or that school is better than the other, um, you are sort of 
boosting your own status, right? Especially these people who are already graduates of or teaching at these institutions, they're bolstering their own status. Uh, and then, you know, they're by, by speaking in this way about the hierarchies and, you know, which school is actually above which other school, they are sort of inflicting costs on everyone else who would like to ascend the educational ladder, who would like to get a degree. Um, but a lot of these people just don't interact much with people who uh, are upwardly mobile or trying to be upwardly mobile, who are trying to go to university, trying to get a degree. Um, the vast majority, and I, and I talk about a lot of the statistics in my book about this in the later chapters, about how more than 80% of Ivy League graduates have at least one parent who went to university. I mean, that's they're sort of immersed in it from birth. They've never actually interacted with a person or had a 15-minute conversation with someone who doesn't have a degree or on their way to getting a degree. Uh, and it's just not on their radar. And so in their world, you know, everyone went to university or everyone should go or, you know, anyone who doesn't go to the same category of university that they went to, there's something wrong with them. Mm. And I noticed this a lot uh, when, when I arrived on campus. I mean, and it's very subtle. I mean, at first I was sort of you know, to some degree, I think I was duped because I fell for the, oh, everyone's equal, everyone's fine, everyone. And, you know, also the other thing about these these institutions now is that they don't they don't look the same, right? One of the, the ideas about or one of the components of the luxury belief idea is that luxury beliefs have to a large extent replaced luxury goods, uh, which isn't to say that luxury goods don't still signify status. Brand names and all of those things still matter. But my claim is that Luxury goods have become a noisier signal of status. You can't tell right away necessarily anymore when you just go about your life in public who's rich and who's poor just by how they look. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I build on these sort of sociological frameworks uh, in my writing and in my book. Um, work from Thorsten Veblen at the turn of the 20th century. He wrote The Theory of the Leisure Class. He wrote about how, you know, the upper class, the aristocrats of his time, uh, they demonstrated their status through, you know, tuxedos and evening gowns and pocket watches and monocles and uh, expensive and intricate hobbies and uh, attending lavish events, uh, hiring servants, those kinds of things. And then by the mid 20th century, there was a sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu who wrote a book called Distinction, a Social Critique of the Judgment of Taste. Uh, and one of his insights in that book was that... Um, Rich people, affluent people, they'll convert their economic capital into cultural capital. Uh, and so they'll spend money in order to demonstrate their class or exhibit their membership into this rarefied strata of society. And so in his day, you know, again, in the mid 20th century, and he was mostly commenting on French culture, but people can sort of understand what, you know, what he's getting at, where people would spend, spend money to uh, learn about the subtleties of wine or the intricacies of art or uh, falconry fashion, or or, yeah, falconry or, or beagling or golf or these kinds of, you know, that you have to have money, you can't uh, be the kind of person who works a manual job or who, you know, soft hands. Collar, yeah, soft you see hands. the same thing in almost uh, the reverse in uh, Asian societies at the moment. When mm. I went to Thailand for the first time, all of the receptionists were wearing lighter makeup on their face. Mm. Oh, I right. thought to myself, why? Because it's so silly because, the, you know, the face finishes on whatever the jawline here and, you know, the blending between the face and the neck is difficult to do. And I thought, why? And I asked someone, why the fuck are they their face, making their faces paler? And they said, oh, well, it's because the indigent laborers, the people that work out in the fields, are heavily tanned. Mm. So the higher class jobs are the ones that are inside, which means that the paler you are, the more status you, you is conferred on you by your profession. Mm. But then I also realized how stupid of me mm. and how you know myopically Western of me to do that. Coming from Newcastle upon Tyne, the Jersey shore of the UK, 
where girls turn themselves orange oh, yeah, to yeah. signify, I have all of this leisure time, I'm able to go away on holiday to exotic places and lay by the beach and get sun on me. I like that. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you live in like Northern Europe or somewhere cold where there isn't a lot of sun, having a tan is the the signifier status. So yeah, I think, yeah, that's that's an important point here that, you know, it, it does vary from culture to culture. I mean, I point, you know, I point this out, the research and everything in my writing about how status itself, the specific examples and manifestations can be ephemeral. They can be, they can vary by time and place and culture and generation and so on. But the desire for status, the desire to exhibit it, to show other people how prestigious or how dominant or how, um, you know, how important you are, that that remains. And so my, my claim is that luxury beliefs, I mean, they're mostly confined to that sort of highly educated people who attend elite universities, people who study there, people who are graduates of these places, uh, who tend to operate uh, legacy institutions, who run uh, media and, and, and academia, and who generate knowledge, people who work in sort of culturally influential um, organizations. And a lot of them hold these luxury beliefs. I think we saw this uh, in 2020 and 2021 with the defund the police movement. I mean, I coined the term luxury beliefs in 2019 and started uh, to, to write about it and do the research to sort of support this idea and point everything out that um, uh, sort of all of all of the, the 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 sociological concepts undergirding it. And then the like six months later, people started talking about defunding the police. <laughs> I was like, I don't even have to. Like, I felt like I didn't even have to like, yeah. you know, here's the reasoning behind luxury beliefs is just defund the police. Like it's right there. You don't it's even have the to. the most whenever somebody brings up your work to me and talks about luxury beliefs, mm -hmm. the patient zero example mm -hmm. is defund the police. Yeah, because you, it's so intuitive. Of right? course. Can you right. explain why that encapsulates luxury beliefs so yeah. structurally or functionally so well? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, the, the luxury beliefs idea, if you say defund the police, you are increasing your own status because, I mean, you look like a caring person. You look open-minded and interesting and, and, uh, and highly educated. Um, and... So, and, and it also signifies that you're the kind of person who went to certain kinds of schools, you consume certain kinds of media, you listen to certain kinds of podcasts and so on. Um, and so it makes you look a certain way to your peers. But once the support for defund the police becomes implemented into policy, once police stations and police departments uh, have reduced funding, once you cultivate an attitude, so it's not just the policy, but you're also cultivating the culture and the attitude around law enforcement that, oh, we don't need police. Uh, you sort of give permission to people to be suspicious of police or to be derogatory towards police. Um, as a result, we saw that a lot of a lot of police officers started retiring in large numbers. Uh, there's reports in, in major U.S. cities that they're having difficulty with recruitment. Because if you're a smart, capable young person who wants to make a difference in your community, like, why would you want that job uh, if you know that people are going to view you with suspicion or with some kind of, you know, that, that you're sort of malicious or or evil? I mean, cops, I mean, they get paid okay, but it's not like a... a considering the, the potential danger they face in their job, part of the reason why people would want to do it is because cops formerly used to be seen as respectable and, and, and admirable and people conferred a lot of status onto them. Well, think about the difference between when a policeman currently in, in the sort of current defund the police era that we're in, policeman turns up at a scene mm -hmm. versus a firefighter or an ambulance A&E person. Yeah. You know, the other two emergency services are seen uh, heralded as heroes. Yeah. And the police, like, is it ACAB? 
Mm-hmm. A cab, all, oh, yeah, yeah. all cops are bastards. bastards. Forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, that, and so who wants that job? And so gradually, and we saw this uh, in the aftermath of the defund the police movement, that violent crime spiked all across the US, especially major cities. Uh, homicide rates increased to levels not seen since the early 1990s. Um, and so when all of this was unfolding, I actually I tried to find some survey data to see like who's actually you know, like, because I don't know anyone in my personal life who thinks that we should defund the police. I mean, other than, you know, some some people at Cambridge and other elite universities, but ordinary people who are outside of these institutions. I didn't know anyone who was supporting this movement. So I had a suspicion this was, you know, actually a, a legitimate luxury belief. I looked at survey data for it, um, found one in YouGov in 2020, which found that they, they collected data from a representative sample of Americans, and they broke down the data by income category, and it was the highest income Americans who were the most supportive of defunding the police, <laughs> and it was the lowest income Americans who were the least supportive. Uh, and then when when um, later there, the different, different uh, findings were uh, reported for major U.S. cities, uh, Minneapolis and Detroit, uh, one in New York City, uh, they found that white Democrats were far more supportive of defunding the police than black and Hispanic Democrats. And so it was like the the, the people who were supposedly uh, so, so kind and so uh, sympathetic towards uh, the marginalized and the dispossessed and the poor and so on, they were supporting something that actually those groups didn't even want. And they, I mean, an increased number of them were being victimized as a result of it. Um, in my book, I point out that uh, if you compare the lowest income Americans to Americans who earn the median income, there's, what is it, they're two to three times more likely to be victims of, of violent uh, crimes. They're uh, seven times more likely to be victims of assault. They're 20 times more likely to be victims of sexual assault. Like essentially across the board, the lower your income, the more likely you are to be a target of crime. Could do with the police. Yes, exactly. You could, yeah, it would be nice to have someone you could call if you're being burglarized or, or assaulted. Um, and so, yeah, it was, uh, it was a complete, uh, uh, sort of backfiring and I haven't seen, you know, there hasn't really been any sort of accountability or any kind of, um, acknowledgement of what happened in the aftermath of that movement. Yeah, it's wild. And then obviously the, the big elephant in the room here is that the people who were supporting it are the ones who are the most likely to live in a gated community, in an area or a neighborhood that has not called the police in a decade since the last time that someone from the community that they're probably talking about trying to protect accidentally wandered through their gated mm. community. Uh, so it's rules for thee, but not for me. And let me explain to you, poor underclass peasant person, what is best for you from my vantage point out here in my very comfortable home. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's one of the components of the luxury belief is that the believer is sheltered from the consequences of the belief. And so, yeah, the people who were supporting the defund the police movement, uh, largely college educated, living in safe communities, living in gated communities. There were reports um, during the, the political unrest in 2020 and all of the BLM demonstrations and so on, all of the riots that people in like rich people in Chicago were hiring private security to patrol their neighborhoods because you know the police were either distracted due to all of the uh, social unrest and crime that was occurring uh, or because police were retiring and so on and so they were hiring private security in these um rich neighborhoods and then in New York City there were reports of people just fleeing to the Hamptons like you know if you have money and you have resources you can just flee to your private little gated area and from home start tweeting about defund the police and get all the likes and 
plaudits. Oh my from god, your, you're so you know, caring. I know yeah. the cops are so wrong. More, like they're treating these poor black people so badly. And you can, I mean, I think people who are um, sort of affluent upper middle class people, they have a mistaken view of what sort of poverty looks like. Their only exposure to it is when they see um, when when they see it reported in the media. When it's a criminal who's committed some kind of uh, transgression. And that surfaces up and then they learn about the criminal's backstory and they start to feel sympathetic and so on and so forth. And there's not nearly as much time spent on the victims of that person's crime. And so in, in often what happens is that the, in, in at least the, the imagination of this uh, strata of society that, you know, they conflate poverty with criminality. And the reason why someone commits crimes is because they're poor without really digging into the data or the research and understanding that the vast majority of poor people never commit any crimes. They're more, they're far more likely to be victims of crime than a perpetrator. And they don't really think about this. And then through the sort of portrayal of poverty, I think in pop culture is kind of mistaken too, at least in more sort of recent media where, you know, very few TV shows, it's just not exciting to see some working class person making, you know, minimum wage, going to work, clocking in, clocking out, going home to their family and living a normal life. But it's more interesting to see, you know, the the struggling school teacher who decides to break bad and start cooking meth and <laughs> lashing out at the system. And that's just a much more interesting story. Uh, and so that is, I mean, there was this movie that came out, I think it was last year, the year before Emily, the criminal with uh, Aubrey Plaza. I don't know if you saw it, but no. it was, I mean, it was like the perfect kind of movie for this, for this, you know, the luxury belief class. It's this young woman who works in food catering and she has this dickhead boss and she has dream. I think she, she is a college graduate. She has dreams of being an artist, but she has difficulty monetizing her artwork. And so she caters food, but then she like gets hooked in with this gang and like learns how to shoplift. And, you know, the whole thing is like, you know, well, you know, screw the system. You know, I can't make money off my artwork and I have to work in food catering. And this is just ridiculous. And so I'm going to, you know, start stealing and, and robbing people. And, and the movie is portraying this as like a perfectly reasonable course of action right and uh and this is like it's basically like breaking bad but the young woman version for all yeah yeah and uh yeah i just think it's uh that, that's that's part of what drives the luxury beliefs phenomenon yeah it's wild man and when you see that you you really can't unsee it uh mary harrington had this about uh, a lot of the advances that were proposed by the feminist movement in the 50s 60s and 70s were um put forward by women for whom the impact wouldn't affect them. So a perfect example is, I guess, the push toward independence and uh, the derogation of chivalry by men. Hmm. Because chivalry in some ways can be patronizing, must be patronizing to women. Like, hmm. I can open the door for myself. Right. I can carry my own bags. Right. Like, I can pull my own chair out. I can pay for my own dinner. And in a world where women are trying to find and establish themselves socioeconomically as independent agents, aside from the husband or partner that they're supposed to need, I can understand why that would be the case. But as she said, it is a direct line from men shouldn't open the door and don't need to, to why you shouldn't hit your wife, right? Because the consensus is women are more fragile, vulnerable, and need to be protected. Mm -hmm. And men should be the ones that do that protecting. And it's the women who are married to men who had a two-parent household, who had a relatively good example of how to treat women when they were growing up, who have been through all of the institutions that have kind of softly embedded what chivalry is in any case, because mm -hmm. that's just the way that a, a more sophisticated social life goes. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't think about women who are 
in an underclass or working class environment who are in a relationship with a guy who never knew his father, whose mum was cycling in and out of different boyfriends or partners or whatever in the house, who was maybe abused physically or verbally or emotionally or whatever while they were growing up, all of whose friends are ruffians that are going about and antisocial behavior and all of this stuff. And it's like, well, I know that for you, lady that drives a Mercedes Benz, you might like the idea of being liberated from men holding the door open for you. But downstream from that, you've also liberated women from being protected from their underclass partner from hitting them when he gets annoyed on a nighttime. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, I really, I, I just thought that that was such an interesting frame. The mm -hmm. same thing goes for uh, support for um, abortion rights, mm. right? When you think about that, it's I think that it is skewed toward the people in the upper class believe that it is a great idea to restrict abortion rights overall, to mm -hmm. give less access. But you think, well, maybe if you were woman 213 of one particular village somewhere who's six kids deep yeah. to three different men, maybe easy access to birth control would be a good thing mm -hmm. for them to have. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's so interesting how it can be split up by race yeah. or it can be split up by class yeah. or it can be split up within gender. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that was, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think that a lot of the people who promote these views or who think that these are sort of progressive or fashionable or enlightened, they don't think about how it would affect someone outside of their social strata or they mistakenly overextend the way that they think to everyone else that, well, here's what would be good for me or here's what would be good for my class or my group and therefore it would be good for everyone or the only reason why other people aren't thinking like me or aren't pursuing the same kind of life as me is because they don't have the same uh or, or because my preferences aren't aren't implemented in society or throughout culture i mean that yeah what you said earlier about about mary harrington's point is interesting i mean i i saw this firsthand that where i grew up basically anyone anyone like you know uh, who was remotely sort of academically inclined you know, went off to some state university, everyone who who wasn't, but still had some sort of uh, restlessness or ambition, they joined the military. And then all the guys who were left behind, I mean, there's, there's, you know, not not much left for the women there to, to pick from. And a lot of these guys did grow up without dads or without good sort of male role models around. And yeah, I mean, it, yeah, what ends up happening often is like, you know, women get, you know, they, they have children with multiple men or the men, uh, you know, they they have multiple partners and don't interact with their kids. I mean, I, you know, I have now have friends that I graduated from high school with who are these guys. And yeah, it's just it looks very different, right? Like that um, the sort of liberation and the belief that, you know, women don't need a man or men shouldn't, uh, you know, women can live the same kind of life as a man. And maybe it's true if you are affluent and you go off to college and you're going to be a young professional uh, career driven Earning person six figures but if you're just working a menial job and you're not i mean most people aren't going to derive a ton of satisfaction from the way that they make money well there's um, a story that you i remember you telling me maybe about some lady friend that you'd spoken to about she said that we should be able to move beyond the nuclear family because it's restrictive and constraining yeah yeah, this was um, someone I graduated from Yale with. We were somehow got on the topic of family and future and this kind of thing. And she was basically telling me that, yeah, marriage is this outdated patriarchal institution and we should, society should move beyond it. We should evolve, get past it. And so I asked her, well, how did you grow up? What was your like family life situation when you were a child? And 
she said, you know, I was raised by my mom and my dad. And, you know, I did have that kind of, you know, conventional family. And then I asked her what she planned to do later in her, you know, once, you know, because she was planning to, she was working at a technology firm. She was going to go to law school. But I asked her in her future when she has a family or if she wanted a family, what would she do? And she said, oh, yeah, you know, I do want a family someday. You know, I'll probably get married and have a husband and, you know, essentially get married and like, you know, partake in this outdated patriarchal institution. And so I was thinking that, okay, you benefited from this uh, age old, ancient sort of patriarchal, but, you know, this institution, and you plan to carry the benefits of that uh, arrangement forward for your own children. But your official public position is no one should do this. It's outdated. She was sort of denigrating it, trying to downplay it, saying other people shouldn't do this. And to me, it seemed very duplicitous that, you know, this clearly marriage has positive benefits. I mean, that was something that I learned when I got to college was almost every single one of my classmates and peers came from two parent families, whereas where I grew up, it was basically zero. And so clearly marriage had some, you know, some kind of effect here. Um, and yet the place, the, 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 the group that is the most likely to downplay the benefits of marriage are the most likely to be products of successful marriages under the most likely to form marriages themselves. How come you're not more bitter about your childhood? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I used to be. I used to actually be more angry uh, when I was in my late teens, early 20s. Um, I mean, I think part of it was just getting older. Um, I think just age, you just things just kind of tend to like burn out and dim over time anyway. Um, and I think, you know, the other was just a lot of sort of self, uh, focused work, uh, self improvement, um, trying to, you know, get past it and put it all into context and realize, you know, that, that on the one hand, people are sort of responsible for what they do in their lives. Um, but on the other, I mean, to understand the sort of, to understand the genealogy of the ideas that led us to this point, that's been helpful too, to understand that, yes, like day to day we have agency over our lives, but the sort of, there are these decisions and, and cultural trajectories and all of these other forces that are in place that, that play a role too. And so, you know, when I start to dig to, at the root of this of, you know, who is responsible for some of these ideas, who... Uh, promotes the luxury beliefs and so on and entering into institutions where I can see it, you know, I can, it helps me to just understand it. And I think that sort of settles my, you know, settles my anger a bit too. It's very interesting yeah. thinking about that. I, I had a Sirut Chavla on, she's a psych therapist uh, mm. pushing back very hard against uh, what she calls Instagram therapy, mm. which is identifying everybody as a victim and uh, that they've got trauma and stuff. And she said, um, remembering that you experience trauma isn't being a victim, making your identity out of it is. Yeah. 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 I think that's well put. I mean, I didn't really, I didn't really think of myself as a victim and, and people didn't call me a victim. I never thought in those terms until I got to college before that it was just day-to-day -day life. I mean, it was just, you know, trying to struggling to get by, trying to make money, trying to whatever, living paycheck to paycheck. And then later joining the military and, you know, I just, my, my uh, plate was full later. Um, you know, sort of towards the end of my enlistment before I entered college, I did um, do a stint in, in rehab and I talked to uh, therapists and, you know, I did sort of address a lot of the issues that I had experienced when I was a kid. 
And that was helpful too, I think, to just sort of contextualize it and also to, um, you know, to just sort of be more open with the people I grew up with and close with, you know, my sister and my mom and all these people to just, you know, my adoptive family to, to talk to them about all of this. I mean, that's helpful too. I think there is this, um, this tendency for young people, young men in particular, that, you know, self-sufficiency will solve all your problems to just be completely self-reliant. You don't have to rely on anyone. You know, your, your relationships are sort of peripheral. Um, and I lived that way for a while and it probably did help, um, to sort of, I don't know, led me to equip myself to be, you know, a self-sufficient person. But later, you know, I did realize that actually relationships are important. I mean, I went through, I think the first six years, um, after I left home, I never visited, um, I never visited for the holidays. I never visited her for any kind of special occasions. I mean, I, I did visit like, you know, on and off whenever, you know, really whenever it suited my schedule, I was very selfish. Um, but then later, you know, now I make an effort. Now I make an effort to do all of those things and um, realize that actually, you know, all of these things, relationships are more important than, than you think, especially when you're young, right? There, there is, uh, there's value there, um, even if you think there isn't. Yeah, there's a degree of romanticism mm. about monk mode and mm. lone rangering it. Uh, and I think my current theory on this is that monk mode is a great tool, but a bad master. Hmm. because if you continue to pray at the altar of it over a long enough amount of time, the reason that you're doing some equivalent of monk mode, right, which is uh, a over-reliance on self-sufficiency, introspection, and isolation so that you can focus on making yourself into a better version of you, because quite rightly, there are a lot of distractions out there in the world, and if you're trying to do a ton of self-work, or you're going to therapy, or you're in rehab, you're probably not going to have the most flourishing social life. It's going to be difficult for you to juggle all of these plates. And if you do try and juggle all of the plates, you're going to restrict your progress in that area. Like committing yourself to one thing or a very narrow band of things is more than, it's not additive, it's multiplicative, right? Yeah. It allows you to triple down, quadruple down all of your efforts into one very tight area. Mm. And I found myself toward the end of my 20s through my manopause <laughs> that I, I really, really enjoyed monk mode. But I saw, especially for someone that has introverted tendencies, and I get my energy mostly from being on my own a lot of the time, mm. that it started to become more alluring to me than being back out into the world. But the problem with that is the reason that you're doing the monk mode thing or the rehab thing or whatever is to form yourself into a functional member of society who can then go and reintegrate. Mm. And that's the problem, that it, the progress can become addictive to the point where it stops you from doing the thing you're like... The thing that you're doing is sacrificing the thing that you are doing it in order to get. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah you sort of mistake the the means for the end, the end goal. You're sort of yeah, yeah. It's um, and I think it's difficult to to keep that in mind. I think a lot of people have difficulty with that, especially when you're young. You like what what are your actions attempting to accomplish? What's your overarching goal? Um, you know, Robert Greene makes that distinction between tactician versus strategist, right? The tactician is just what's directly in front of you, what do you need to do next? And the strategist is, well, what's all of this for? Like, what are each of those steps trying to get you to? And I think, yeah, when you're young, you just think, oh, I want to make money. And like money becomes the thing. And it's like, well, what's the money for? <laughs> like, what do you want to do with that money? When you build up your bank account, what is that the goal is just to have a big number uh, on your uh, balance? Or is it to take care of your loved ones, to have the freedom to be able to interact with people that you care about and to provide and those kinds of things? And I, I think I, I mean, I kind of came to that realization when I was in my mid-20s, but it wasn't until in my later 20s 
really probably right not until I w- was about to start grad school I was, I was like 20 28 that I really had that realization that oh the reason why I'm working so hard and trying to get educated and successful and trying to make money and all these things is so that I could take care of my my current family my adoptive family but then also for if and when I have a family later we'll say when that um, I'll be able to take care of them too in a way that I lacked when I was a kid um, and that's what ultimately all of these things are for it's not just to whatever increase the the numbers on on my you know social media or on my balance or something like that so your background mm-hmm. the life that you went through to where you ended up uh Air Force yeah Air Force Air Force yeah. US Air Force GI Bill Yale Cambridge PhD book you know going to be an, an amazing selling book all the rest of the stuff what do you attribute that trajectory to given that you're friends with so many of the people that you grew up with that are still they're, they're the guy they're that guy with three baby mamas and a bunch of alimony or whatever and they're in the same town in the same whatever what was formative or what what do you attribute the change in you to that the other people didn't I mean, there are probably, you know, there's a variety of factors. I think one is, um, you know, you, you do need to have like a, a certain amount of like innate drive or ambition in the first place. And that I, I'm not entirely sure you can, you can, you can drill that into people. Um, so you have to have that sort of raw material in the first place. But one point that I try to make in the book is that things could have very easily gone a different direction. Um, I think having sort of aptitude and drive and ambition, those are necessary but not sufficient. That there are a lot of guys, I think, who are sort of smart and talented and ambitious, but they're just surrounded by chaos and disorder and, you know, lack opportunity or or they've just been sort of beaten down by life so much that they don't even think to like spot the opportunities that are around you um, and capitalize on them. And so so that was there. So I think some of the raw material was probably there. Um, and then the other thing was just uh, making this, you know, kind of halfway impulsive decision when I was 17 to just enlist and get out of my hometown. And I kind of knew that, you know, I at this point, you know, I'd, I'd had two jobs when I was in high school. I was a dishwasher at a restaurant and then I was a bag boy at a grocery store. And I kind of looked around at my coworkers who were a little older than me. These were guys, you know, this kind of guy in their early to mid 20s. You know, maybe they like some of them, like they were like 24, but had a girlfriend in high school and they were just like kind of creepy, weird stoner guy or the guy who, you know, would ride a dirt bike and, you know, just like smoke a lot of weed in the parking lot and just, you know, kind of aimless and adrift. And I thought like, I, I think now when you're 17 or 18, that's kind of cool to live that life. But when you're 24 or 28, like that's kind of pathetic. And even when I was a teenager, I had that thought that, you know, sometimes my friends and I would ask these guys to like get us beer, or hook us up with weed or whatever. And you know, some part of me, I was, I was like happy they were doing it. But on the other hand, I was like, why, like, why are you doing this for us, man? Like what kind of loser is hanging out with a bunch of high schoolers? And I don't want to be like the weird old guy at the high school party when I'm that age. Um, and so, you know, a variety of factors led me to, uh, just enlist right away. I barely graduated high school. I mean, I, I was smart. And that, that's the other point that I, I try to make in the book is that, a lot of people want to blame the school system or that there's something wrong with teachers or we aren't paying them enough. And so, and maybe some of those things are true, but teachers aren't d- dumb. Like the, most teachers get into that profession because they care about kids and they want them to do well. And they're usually pretty observant about like which kids are sort of curious and academically inclined. And my teachers could see that in me. 
but I just had no motivation or desire to do well in school. It just wasn't there for me. Um, and so my teachers were just, you know, uh, continually frustrated by me. And so, yeah, I, I enlist, I get out of there, basic training, I get stationed, I spend some time overseas and sort of have that structure uh, around me. Uh, a couple of days ago, I spoke with a, a mutual friend of ours, Polina Pompliano, and she asked me this question of, when I read your book and I read about what you were like when you were a teenager, when you were in high school, and then I meet you now, like it just doesn't, like there's a disconnect, I don't understand it. And I explained that <laughs> I was in the Air Force for eight years, like that's a long time. Like I was in from 17 to 25. And, you know, the book I kind of like gloss over because it's, it's kind of mind numbing and boring, but it's like, you know, make your bed, you know, like make sure your uniform is, you know, perfect. And like it's Jordan you know, Peterson boot camp. Exactly. It, it is kind of like that, especially for the first six months to a year when you're in training. It's like you're not a you're not a person. You're just like a cog in this machine of just like, you know, what it, like cleaning and 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 being meticulous about every little aspect of your existence. Um and I hated it. I hated every second of it. <laughs> but it was it was important for me to go through that, uh, to like learn the skills that I kind of lacked when I was growing up of just like, here's how to be an adult. Here's how to take care of yourself. Here's how to dress properly and like even basic things, right? What, and, what were the most surprising? Mm. I, I think this would be a nice framing, actually. As you move up through the cacophosphere of different social strata, what were the most surprising realizations going from Rob 1.0 to Rob 2.0, which is, I guess, from teenager to uh, being in the Air Force? What were the things where you're like, oh my God, like that's a an expectation or a, a, a social convention or that's a way of operating or it's a belief or whatever? I mean, I think w probably one of the bigger ones was um, it's like learning the distinction between like self-discipline and motivation. Uh, because I, I lacked, I really lacked both when I was a teenager. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't feel motivated to do well, but I also had, I had no external discipline around me really. I mean, I had it in sort of fits and starts in different periods. It was just a very sort of chaotic early life, but I had no self-discipline certainly. Like I couldn't impose on myself. It just, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the, the tools to do that. But then in the military, I learned it that, you know, at first it was imposed from on high that this is how you will do things. And then it gets drilled into you. And then you just learn on your own, like, oh, this is how you get things done is motivation is, you know, so the, the distinction, the motivation is just a feeling. It's like, do I want to do this or not? And if I don't want to do it, I lack the motivation and I'm just not going to do it. Whereas self-discipline is I'm going to do this regardless of how I feel. Uh, and so, you know, for, for some people, it may make sense in, in the context of like going to the gym that I don't feel like going to the gym today, but self-discipline is, it doesn't matter how you feel. Like, oh, you have a feeling, who cares? Like, what are your actions? What are you actually going to do now? Ignore those feelings and and do what you've set out to do. And so it was like that for my work, for things like, I mean, even showing up to work on time. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of sad, but I was one of the better workers uh, at my jobs in high school. And even then I was like not on time half the time, like it didn't matter, I didn't feel like it. And then the military was, if you don't show up to work on time, you get court-martialed and you go to military prison, <laughs> like that's the life. And once I learned like to, to operate by those standards and those regulations, those policies that it dawned on me that actually, you know, Jocko has this phrase, discipline equals freedom, that once you sort of outsource all of your decisions to this sort of regimented system, 
then suddenly like life gets better and you do have more freedom. You have the freedom to think about other things or to uh, direct your attention to certain projects or goals or ideas. And you don't have to live your life in this constant state of chaos of, oh, I don't have any money now. What? You know, like that. You just, you know, set the set, set the system so that your money goes here and this is what you're going to do when you go to work at this time. And this is when you leave. And this is what's and having that regimented system was really uh, important for me. And now I just, you know, I do it. It's second nature to me, but it took eight years <laughs> to get there. So, yeah, I think those, those, those kinds of things. Discipline was the big one. What do people who didn't grow up in poverty not know about what it's like to grow up in poverty? Um, I mean, I think, I think poverty, poverty is, it's an interesting question because I think a lot of people actually attempt to they attempt to imagine it I, I know a lot of people actually who didn't grow up poor but who at least try to imagine what it would have been like to be poor um and I think like the the imagination probably isn't too far off from the reality that there are certain things that you want but maybe you can't get or if you want a, a, a toy or a certain food or a certain thing that you know, I think poverty now for at least in sort of developed first world countries, very few people are actually starving in the street. But it's more like, you know, I I want to get, um, you know, may, maybe it's like a special occasion and I want to rent a video game at Blockbuster, but that's six dollars and we're only going to let you rent a movie because it's three dollars. Like those kinds of like weird small things. Um, and you can only go on a special occasion for your birthday or something. It's not like a weekly uh, occurrence. Um, the other thing is like the, I think like the, the social environment is something people don't think about as well, that what family life and communities look like in poor and working class areas now are much different than, than they, than they used to look like. I mean, I cite this statistic in my book about how in the 1960s, 95% of children in the U.S., regardless of social class, were raised by both of their birth parents. And then by 2005, for the upper class, it had dropped to 85%. So there was a slight dip, but by and large, that's the norm still. Whereas for working class families in the U.S., working class children, um, it dropped from 95% to 30%. And that was 2005. My guess is it's dropped a little bit further than that now. Um, and so just to give a sort of a glimpse into this, I mean, there was, I had five close friends growing up in high school. And so there was me sort of raised in foster homes and adopted, but there were divorces and other kinds of drama. Uh, I had two friends raised by single moms, uh, one friend raised by a single dad. I had another friend who was raised by his grandma because his dad was in prison and his mom was addicted to drugs. And that's kind of like the normal situation when you go to like a if you go to a high school in one of these areas and just start asking people about their parents or their families, they'll start describing about dads in prison or moms in drugs or, you know, I'm staying with my aunt right now because my mom is in rehab or whatever. Very chaotic. Yeah, it's just total, yeah, it's just totally chaotic and disorderly. And this is um, that a, a point that I've made in my writing is that, you know, childhood poverty is not, and again, this is in the context of the US and, you know, first world countries, that childhood poverty is not really a very strong predictor of harmful or detrimental outcomes later in life. Um, the correlation is either very weak or not significant at all between growing up poor and growing up to uh, commit 
crimes or self-defeating behaviors, harm, violence, um, drug addiction, unemployment, all of these kinds of social pathologies. There's a very sort of tenuous connection there. But for childhood instability and those uh, undesirable outcomes, there's a strong and consistent uh, correlation there. Uh, and so childhood instability is measured by things like, uh, you know, were you raised by both of your birth parents? Was there a divorce? How many different adults moved in and out of your home? How frequently did you relocate? Um, basically, how much day-to-day -day disorder was there in your life? How much uncertainty was there? And that actually does seem to have a very strong effect on the on childhood development, on their expectations, on their goals for themselves. And And what's interesting is that when researchers control for childhood family income, the link remains remains strong, it remains significant between instability and outcomes. And so one way to think about this is, um, you know, if, you, if there's a rich family, um, but there's a lot of drama and chaos and divorce and addiction and domestic issues, uh, a child raised in that environment is much more likely to have detrimental outcomes, more likely to commit crimes or become addicted to substances or, um, uh, or just, yeah, have, have issues, you know, children out of wedlock or multiple with multiple partners versus, uh, a child who is raised by two very low income parents who are married, who, uh, are very focused on creating a stable and secure life for their kids. And you can kind of see this, I think with like immigrant families and uh, low income families that, uh, haven't really been quite, uh, afflicted by a lot of the pathologies that have occurred in, in the U S, um, and so I think that's important to remember too. It's that yes, there's this poverty component, but there's also just this kind of. Sometimes I wonder if poverty is even the right word for the way that I grew up. I think squalor is probably a more accurate term. Is like yeah, there was a bit of that material impoverishment, but it was more just people like living in a very um, kind of ugly and almost like masochistic way of just you know uh, careless and uh, impulsive and you know, sort of drug addled. What's the mechanism mm -hmm. that you think is causing that to happen? What is it about, it's so universal that this uh, unstable, disorganized upbringing, regardless of mm -hmm. class or material wealth, mm -hmm. seems to have such negative impacts predictively down, what, what, what do you think is the mechanism there? I mean, you know, I probably some of it uh, would be genetics. But I'm not sold that it's 100%. Uh, right. People that people that are yeah. uh, quick yeah. to anger, externalizing behavior as parents give the raw materials of externalizing behavior to kids. Right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I think that's, that's really good. I think that's a, a like one one piece of it. But I think that it, Robert Plowman reigns yeah. supreme. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah, that that would be the Robert Plowman answer. Um, you know, and but I I do think that 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 can't explain 100 percent of it because you know if you if you just so for example if you just look at white Americans over time, like all of the same things have occurred uh, across social classes that actually, you know, 50, 60 years ago, um, I mean, I, I'll give you an example just for my adoptive family. So um, my adoptive family are basically white working class people um, on my mother's side. And so my grandparents, uh, you know, they were, you know, they, they grew up basically during the Great Depression and they got, you know, but they got married, you know, my, my grandfather and my grand, they, they would tell me this story about how my grandfather asked my grandmother to marry him. And I think she, he was 18 or 19 and she was like 17 and she, you know, they were just like two, the only two young people in this town. And, you know, and she was like, I'll marry you, but you have to, what is it? You have to stop smoking, stop drinking, stop gambling. 
And he was like, done and done. They got married and they had a 60 plus. Let's have sex. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, yeah. And then they had how many? I think they had four or five kids. Yeah, they had four kids. Yeah. Yeah. And and they were uh, married for 60 plus years. No issues. I'm sure they had issues, but like, you know what I mean? And then they had four kids. All four kids divorced. Um, And, you know, I just... You know, they they had married. They they did get married, but then they ended up getting divorced. You know, some of them had, you know, kids, stepkids, that kind of thing. Now I'm a member of the next generation, and I'm seeing my cousins, and it's like it's not even marriage. It's just like oh, like they hooked up and had a kid, but he hasn't spoken to his kid in you know three years, and you know, so that's what it looks like now. And I don't think the genetics in this family lineage changed much. It was the social environment. It's the incentives. It's the denigration of marriage. It's um, and I don't even, you know, people will point to economic factors, but my grandparents were very, they were probably poorer than, they're definitely poorer than my cousins now. You know, like they could not afford the things that my same age, you know, 30 year old cousins could afford. Mm. Um, so it wasn't a, an economic issue. I think a lot of it was just cultural. Uh, what are your expectations? I think a lot of it has to do with a lot of the stuff that you and I have talked about and you speak about on your podcast around incentives around sex and romance and dating and just um yeah uh in the 19 what is it the 1940s 1950s my grandparents generation it was like you know if you wanted to have sex you had to like live well, a certain it, kind baby. of life exactly and that was uh that was just the reality then and now it's um it's completely different and i presented this thought experiment before i think i posted this on on back when it was still called twitter which was if you traveled back to 1945 just got in a time machine and walked out and you know, the post-war era, and you said, and, you know, very soon, I think it was 1960 when the birth control pill was invented, you say very soon, there's going to be this magical technology, the birth control pill, um, so contraceptives will be widely available, abortion will be, you know, it'll be more accessible, def- certainly than it is now, um, so you'll have, you know, the, all of these reproductive options before you. Do you think in the future there will be more children born out of wedlock or fewer? Do you think that there will be more abortions or fewer? Do you think there will be more children raised in foster homes or orphanages living in chaos and squalor, more or less? And I think, you know, almost everyone that you speak to in 1945, you present this survey, um, I think almost every one of them would say less. They would say fewer. And then, you know, I. but that's not the case. It was yeah. very much the opposite of that, that I think even these technologies and you know, and, and the culture and everything sort of went in a, in a very different direction than I think people had predicted. Mary Eberstadt came on the show and uh, Adam and Eve and the Pill revisited a new version of her old book. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Just so great. And it's true, man. Like, you know, we look back and it's kind of cool in the Red Pill manosphere, even in the EP world, you know, the social psychology world, mm. for people to almost laugh, snigger at how rudimentary the thinking was in the 1960s that introducing birth control would result in better outcomes in terms of abortion, better outcomes in terms of out out of wedlock births. Uh, But who then would have been able to predict that that was what was going to happen? You're talking like a fourth order effect, right? Like, okay, so you're going to decrease shotgun weddings because the onus is going to go from the male that accidentally impregnated to the woman who, quote-unquote, chose, yeah, chose, right? Everything. It went from a man's mistake to a woman's option. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, right, and then, and then what's going to happen to that? And what's going to happen to that? But it's like, a, it's so far down the line. Uh, I was talking to Scott Galloway, hmm. and uh, 
you know, he was talking about the predictive power of stuff in the past. And he was saying, you know, he'd looked through, combed through some research about the Great Depression and had looked for anybody. Anyone predict this? It's like the year before the Great Depression in the 20s. No one, nothing, not, not a Cassandra in sight. And yet in retrospect, you go, how could no one have seen this coming? Mm. You know, it, hindsight, hindsight, is, hindsight yeah. is a wonderful thing with yeah. regards to that. One, one question that I've got that I think is kind of interesting is, so squalor, your mm. word, uh, up until the age of 16? 17. 17, yeah. up until the age of 17. That should set a pretty low hedonic threshold, right? That uh, you're in a nice air-conditioned room mm. and your jeans fit and don't have holes in and you're not worrying about whether or not you can pay for the Uber to get from here to the airport. Mm. How have you found your ability to uh, hedonically adapt over time? Like, can you recall that as an anchor for your quality of life? Or does it almost seem like it's someone else that lived that? That's, oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I guess it's it's a bit of both. I mean, it's it's so day to day. I think I don't really, yeah, I, I don't really reflect in that way. You know, you just sort of live your life. But when I reflect back and when I think about it, and I realize, you know, there are those moments where, like, wow, like I can do this thing that I couldn't have done. You know, even even after I, I was in the middle. I mean, the, the, I think it's the, the pay structure has probably changed a bit. But when I enlisted in two thousand seven, I was, you know, I think the the I was making like twelve hundred dollars a month was the the pay. And so I couldn't afford a belt, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) it was like small little things like that. Like, you know, once I cover, you know, because I moved. Yeah. Once I moved off base, I got this house with my friends. But, you know, you have to pay like first. Yeah. It's so funny now. Like it doesn't matter to me because I can I can I have money. But back then it was like. Like like panicking, I was like, you have to pay the first month and the last month's rent up front, <laughs> and then it's like the security deposit, and then it's this, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you have to, and then like gas to commute back and and all of these kinds of things, and calculating all of this, and it's like, oh well, I guess I can't wear a belt for a couple of weeks until my next <laughs> paycheck. It's like that. <laughs> it sucks, and uh, and so you know, so there are times like that where I'm like, oh, I could just buy this without thinking about it, and that that part is nice. Um, so I think it is that kind of. Um, you know, so like happiness researchers will do this. Um, what is it like? Uh, they have terms for this. It's like li- life satisfaction versus. Um, I think they may just call it happiness. Where like happiness is like your your actual affective state in the moment, day to day. How much positive versus negative emotion are you experiencing subjectively throughout the day or the week or whatever? And then there's the life satisfaction component, which is basically when you step back and view your life as a whole, how satisfied are you? And those two things are correlated, but they're not quite the same in some ways. I think parents often report much lower levels of happiness, but <laughs> higher levels of life satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, and I think in that regard, it's like, you know, my happiness, I don't know if it's actually changed much. Maybe there is a bit of that hedonic adaptation where, you know, 15 years ago, it was like, oh, I can, you know, I can go to Wendy's, cool, like I'm happy. Whereas now it's, um, you know, something else. And, but it, but ultimately that hasn't changed. But the life satisfaction, I'm sure, is is much higher that like, oh, I've had a few accomplishments and I can afford things. And I don't have to think about money as much anymore. And so, yeah, I think there is that. And yeah, and also like reminiscing too. like when I talk to my sister or some of my my old friends from high school and just sort of thinking about those days, it's like. You know, I, I do feel a bit better now about my life compared yeah. to what it was. I was. I was talking to a friend and uh, they were asking me stuff about my childhood. And my memory is really patchy mm. from my childhood. It's not fantastic, uh, especially not sort of pre-10. Hmm. And um, I said, look, like, what, what do you remember? And I said, well, I remember a good bit because of my sister. 
because we'll prompt each other yeah. about, oh, do you remember that? Oh my God. Yeah, we did do that thing. And and we were in that car or we got stuck in the the mud or whatever, right? And um, yeah, there's a degree where I wonder how much is just one good chat GPT prompt away from <laughs> uh, me, you know, opening out into this really beautiful answer about some insight or whatever, some experience that I had as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, George Mack, my mm. friend, once a month, lies in bed before he wakes up for 10 minutes and imagines what it would be like to live with no arms or legs. Hmm. That's one of his favorite meditations among among a bunch of other weird ones. Hmm. So he's trying to dial up contrast as much as possible. Interesting. Think about all of the challenges that I would have to face. Think about what this day is going to entail. Think about all of the things that would be difficult for me. Think about how grateful I would be if only I could just, you know, wash my own back if only i could brush my own teeth if only i could do these things so what he's trying to do oh, yeah. is, is give himself gratitude for the things that he takes for granted that are very normal now the interesting thing with your example is that you don't need to imagine what it would be like to live in squalor mm -hmm. because you did yeah but the way that our sense of self works you know, what is it? Every seven years, every cell in your body has turned over. Mm -hmm. So there isn't even, you're like the two ship of Theseus, three, <laughs> three, three ship of Theseus is away from the person that you were then. And yeah. even for me now being in Austin for two years, I went back home for Christmas and it's like, it's kind of like a fever dream. I'm being back in this place that I know so well, but I'm different, but I'm not. And then I find triggers, environmental triggers, causing me to fall back into other different ways of thinking and stuff like that. Um, so I was interested in whether or not, basically, you have been able to lock in a degree of gratitude, uh, like relativistic gratitude, I suppose, based on where you came from to where you are now. But it's a permanent a permanent battle like in some regards from a poverty perspective like you were a guy who was born with no arms or legs and then grew them mm, mm. yeah yeah i mean I, yeah those i think that yeah that's that's right where i were if i think about what it was like back then and i compare it to now of course like things are much better for me and yeah i mean it's it would be it would be i think shameful to be anything other than completely grateful and you know, just full of gratitude for I'm proud as well. I would like to think. Yeah, I mean, that's a weird one. Like the like you know, it's. I think when that, that's one of the things that you know in, in the book, I point this out that like, you know, when you don't really grow up with parents and you don't really, ha I mean, because I grew up in foster homes before. I think like that critic. There's like the developmental window where if you don't really receive like positive feedback, like I think I just like I receive compliments in a very weird way mm. where it's like very hard for me to accept it. It's a skill. I, it's a real skill, man. Yeah. Who is it that I I gave someone a compliment? Fuck, I can't remember who it was. I gave somebody a compliment, mm -hmm. and I've never seen anyone. I wish I could remember who it was, but it would probably be a good idea that I couldn't yeah. call them out in any case. Dude, it's like the worst way that I've ever seen anyone <laughs> okay, take okay. a compliment. Just, you yeah. know, you say this thing that you think is a nice gift that you're mm -hmm. giving somebody. And even giving compliments is a skill that I've had to learn, mm -hmm. because I'm doing something that's nice for somebody else is, is a nice thing to do. Yeah. Um, Gwinda. It was fucking Gwinda. It was on an episode that I did recently. Okay. And uh, I was like, dude, I fucking adore your writing. I adore your Substack. You've got two books coming out. I can't wait to read them. I'm fired up every single time I speak to you on the podcast. I love it. It's like a, it's a fugue state. We drop into for two hours. It's brilliant. And I just saw his face. People can go watch the episode. And it's very, <laughs> I want to watch it, it now. It's very charming. Yeah, like yeah. it's very charming because yeah. obviously he's he holds himself to a high standard and, yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. But you see this guy go like, 
thanks. Yeah, like, yeah, it's hard. And it's very, it's very charming. Yeah. Um, well, the other day I had this this interaction with uh, one of my friend's mothers, and uh, and you know she was like very high energy, and she was like. Oh, you know, Rob, I love your writing, and now it's like I love your Substack, and I watched you on, you know, Modern Wisdom. It was, it was like it's so great. And at first, I was like, you know, oh, that's nice, thank you. You know, trying to like change the subject. I just like <laughs> I feeling the, all these compliments, and I just feel uncomfortable. I'm like, that's really nice of you, thank you so much. And then she's like, no, really. She's like, did you really get a PhD from Cambridge? Because that's amazing. And then like I started to walk away feeling like, damn, I feel pretty good about myself actually. Like, <laughs> can I have you hang around all the time? Eventually, <laughs> I was like, you know, I, I was suddenly getting this like really positive mom energy. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, this is great like actually but it took a second right at first i was like you know just fell into that sort of default like oh very kind of you to say thank you so much and then she kept going with it and i'm like wow this is a really nice that's the amount you're like a (laughs) kind of the equivalent of an of a really obesely overweight person who can't just go in the gym and do a little bit it's like hey we've got to shift 250 pounds you need to stay on that treadmill for another hour mister Uh, and then you finish and you're like oh wow like actually yeah exactly exactly there's like a a crushing weight of compliments that you need but that's something i'd love to i've got um who wrote no more no more mr nice guy Robert Glover. Thank you. Yeah. I've got Dr. Robert Glover coming on the show soon. I'm very excited to speak to him. Okay. And um, I'd love to talk about the uh, the skill of both accepting and uh, giving compliments. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a really underrated skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The ability to give an earnest compliment mm-hmm. and to graciously but honestly receive it. Right. Skill that no one really ever talks about. That is interesting. Yeah, I think from it's at least my impression is it's actually easier to deliver a compliment than to way receive. easier because you can be sincere about it like you can honestly show your appreciation if you enjoy something to tell someone but yeah i've i've yes seen this seems to be a common pattern that people have difficulty with with receiving them more so with guys maybe um than than girls although well, even that's then an interest, that's an interesting one because yeah. with women for sure they they hide ambition uh they downplay success and stuff like that uh, certainly female to female communication, I think there is uh, more opaqueness and mm. more fuckery that goes on mm. with regards to that. If a guy thinks that you've done something shit, they go, dude, that was lame. Mm. Whereas it might be couched in some other sort of language from a woman. Um, yeah, that'd be interesting. I'd love someone to look at uh, sincere versus insincere compliments from uh, comparing men and women. That'd be a fascinating study. This morning I was... Um I was prepping a, a newsletter. It'll go out tomorrow. Uh, you know, I do the, like the three, you know, interesting findings. Everyone needs to go to Rob's Substack and subscribe. I, it's outstanding. Thank you, man. And yeah, I, it, I shamelessly repurpose <laughs> at least one thing every like couple of weeks. You know, I think like well, the findings deserved as as wide an audience as possible. But this was an interesting one. It'll go out um, where so this was a study from 1988. I, I'd be curious to see. Like I don't, I couldn't find anything more recent. But essentially, they broke down by gender um, the domain of 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 where people deliver their compliments. And so for women, it was uh, when women compliment women versus when men compliment men, what are they complimenting? For women, it was mostly appearance. It was like something like 60% of the compliments were about appearance. And then it was like 15% about possessions and 10% about accomplishments and that kind of thing. Hmm. Whereas, so it was mostly appearance based for women when they're complimenting one another. Whereas for men, it was mostly based on uh, accomplishments. most of their uh, compliments to one another were about accomplishments. And so one thing that I would wonder is like, maybe it's, um, I wonder if it's kind of easier or or more difficult depending on, so, so I would imagine like for women when they receive compliments about their appearance, because it seems to be the most common domain that they would 
receive those quite easily because yes. they're used to it. Yes. Whereas for accomplishments, that makes them feel uncomfortable in some way. Understood. Whereas and for if you're a guy, if I go to you and I'm like, dude, you're looking buff. Like, yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> tell me about tell me about how good my last newsletter was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if like we would feel more uncomfortable when it's something other than than the, dude, the, the so, typical target. That's yeah. so fascinating, and it, yet again, it shows just how people's people's behavior zeroes in on the most salient parts of each sex's uh, characteristics. Mm-hmm. So women are complimenting the most important thing to the opposite sex. Men are complimenting the most important thing to the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens with derogation as well. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's an argument between a guy and a woman on the internet, the woman's going to say he's got small dick energy and the guy's going to call her a slag, right? That's it. It's like, I'm going to derogate your chastity. I'm going to derogate your sexual prowess. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that you're not as competent or as rich or as good looking or or, or as like uh, successful as you think you are. And I'm going to say that you're like fat or older and uglier than you are. Why? Well, those are the most important things that you have with regards to social currency. And these are the same people who will throw these sorts of insults around. Like, you know, uh, Greta Thunberg, accused Andrew Tate of having small dick energy. Like, it's, I think it's a, the, the third most liked tweet of all time. Oh, or really? Something like that. I think she's, yeah. I think she's in the top 10 twice. And I think Tate features in the top 10 twice or three times. And at least maybe one or two of those are his interactions with Greta Thunberg. So kind of, I don't know, like... He's like the Michael Jackson to her Janet Jackson or something. Like she's very, very successful when they get together. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, like we're I think that yeah, the same people who would probably endorse like some form of gender blank slate egalitarianism or deny that there are any sort of biologically based sex differences will still sort of target oh, those areas of insecurity. Off, it's the same as the yeah. ex- Harvard Extension School thing. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's yeah. So if um yeah, if you're, you know, a very progressive person, but then a man is annoying you online, you'll immediately start telling him that he's, you know, a virgin or he's, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fucking incel. Like, yeah. oh, okay. Well, yeah. it's, 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 incel, yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you throw that debate around, speaking of that, uh, Alexander Datesyke just put a new study out. Did you see this one? He hasn't released the details, but he's capturing the data at the moment on it through a Google form. <laughs> it's so funny. He's put um, videos up asking participants to rank the attractiveness of different red pill influencers. Okay. So there's uh, the guys from <laughs> Fresh and Fit. Um, okay. uh, uh, who else is in there? I don't know. There's like a bunch of other people that are in there. And uh, it's got the replies are so funny. Oh, I got to look at So it's on It's on Twitter? Like these... these Correct. Yeah. Him mining for the data is on Twitter. Yeah. The results aren't... He's, he's correct. He only put it out yesterday, I think. I got to look at this. And, this um, is hilarious. I, dude, I have to... Is he on there? I he really. I, I'm not. I'm not, and he's not. He went okay. like more kind of like another big names within that yeah. world or whatever. But um, <laughs> he is. Alex has an ability. I don't think I've ever seen you get into a spat on Twitter. I don't I, think I, I don't have. think you've ever had a back and forth, despite having like hundreds of thousands of people that follow you. Uh, Gwinda likes to kind of he's more like a hitman so he'll sit up on a ridge <laughs> snipe and look out and then he'll like fire something and it's like aoc it'll be like a single reply to aoc with 500 likes from him and then nothing he won't tweet for another f- week <laughs> like he, honestly like he pops he pops out of the wilderness looks and he's like adjust the site uh, fires and then leaves <laughs> like um that. but i mean alexander goes in 
with incels in incel co uh that account that i think is the admin yeah, of the yeah. incels.co uh thing he's back and forth with like anyone and like egg anon accounts like if he sees and you've got this essay and it's really well written but um his capacity he's kind of like the destiny of dating research you know he's just got this predisposition that's very good for being able to put up for anyone that doesn't know who we're talking about he's been on the show alexander date psych i think yeah. it's like at alex date psych on on twitter just look whatever day this goes out on look at who he's going tweets and replies and have a look at how many people he's arguing with and i promise you there'll just be mountains like tons and tons and tons and it's no one it's nobody and then sometimes it's a somebody but yeah um, i think he's performing a much needed service because i don't have the patience for that me neither. Um, i think like you know professors and researchers and podcast like just people who have like a million things to do and i think like but he he's he's doing it very well and he's building an audience this way and i think you know it's it's he's he's channeling his his knowledge and his research toward productive ends and you know i, I think it, it someone should be engaging with a lot of these like black pills you know these it's people. a fucking high price to yeah pay, yeah do you see that we got lumped into uh, uh we we got given a name oh, we did. it's me you William Costello hmm. and Alexander Datesyke, and it's the academic manosphere. Okay, good company. I like it. Yeah, I think I'll that's think a that's a pretty good. I was in there. Really? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I think you okay. were. I, it was a long time ago when this thing. It was like maybe months ago, and I, I did okay. forgot to send it to you. But yeah, the academic the academic manosphere types. It was used as a slur, but I was like, yo, if you want this to be a slur, make it less cool of a name. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, yeah. fucking dope. I want to be a part yeah. of the academic manosphere. Yeah, yeah. I got I got lumped in a, a couple of years ago with. It was some like, you know, like someone was like trying to create like a league of the IDW. This was back when the IDW was still, I think, I think it was still a thing or it was kind of on the way down. It was like 2020, 2021. Um, and yeah, it was like in the minor leagues. It was like, you know, there were heavy hitters, you oh, know, right, Eric okay. Weinstein, yeah. you're whatever, the third Sam string QB. And then it was, and, you know, back then, I, I don't know what I had, like 10,000 followers or something. And it was like, that would have been probably guy. after your University of Austin thing, maybe, or around about that time. It was before then, even. It was like, you know, I think you and I had just met and it was like still kind of early days. And, uh, and I was looking at this, I'm like, I don't want to, you know, like, I, yeah, I like some of the people who are, were, whatever. I don't know if it's, it's not really still a thing anymore, but I like some of those people. Like, I'm not really in this IDW thing. Like, I thought it was kind of, yeah. So talking about you moving into the real, you know, upper stratosphere, troposphere of, of mm. class, mm -hmm. moving through your time in uh, the Air Force, what about when you got to Yale first and then Cambridge? what was some of the conventions that really sort of stood out to you? Because I think this has informed a lot of your ability to sit back and, and look at these dynamics and go, oh, isn't that interesting? Because you have a, an anchoring bias to be able to compare it to. You're mm -hmm. like, oh, I saw this thing, and then I saw this, and then I saw that. So I'm actually able to s observe these dynamics for what they are, rather than kind of, I get to see code rather than matrix, as opposed to have only ever grown up inside of the matrix. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I so yeah, I arrived uh, on campus 2015 uh, as a you know, mature student, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but so, Asian, so looking like a normal age student. I think I had the beard back then. So I had like a full beard. You know, so this is like a very common thing with vets where like, because you have to shave every day. In oh, military, right. And they like inspect you to make sure it's like, it better be like this morning you shaved, not last night kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and so as soon as I got, I'm like, you know, fucking not, not shaving for six months. I didn't work out. Dude. I think I gained like 20 pounds. <laughs> like it, the first semester was bad where I was like, I was like, I don't have to work out Soft anymore. Mode. I don't have to shave. Yeah, it was really nice. And then like, I don't I, I uh, like looked in the mirror like, like six months in, and I was like, I got to fix this. This is horrible. <laughs> like, um, but the first six months, it was glorious. Yeah. Um, 
and so but yeah I, I looked older i was older and you know the students some of them would crack uh, jokes about 21 jump street you know like that kind of thing yeah. and um yeah it was i think the first couple of months or so nothing really unusual but then I saw this very strange, uh, you know, I mentioned before, like witnessed the kind of birth of this new politically correct movement where a professor had written an email essentially defending freedom of expression on campus. It later became known as the Yale Halloween Halloween costume controversy uh, on campus where this was October. Uh, the Yale administration released this email basically telling the students to, you know, not engage in any cultural appropriation, don't wear costumes that would be offensive to these groups. And then uh, one of the faculty members on campus basically wrote an email just to her students in her residential college saying, like, do we really need the administration interfering in our lives? Like, you're all adults. I trust that if you wear things that maybe you don't other people don't like, you guys can just work it out amongst yourselves, essentially defending freedom of expression. And in response, hundreds of students marched around campus calling for her to be fired and later for her husband, Nicholas Christakis, to be fired, mm -hmm. um, saying that she was racist. She was defending cultural appropriation. These <laughs> students claimed they didn't feel safe on campus. And they were using this kind of language, uh, which I think like now all of this stuff is kind of spilled out of the universities and we're all kind of familiar with all this sort of victimhood stuff. But back then I was just completely like flummoxed that, wow. you know, it was like, we're in danger. We, you know, they caused us pain, suffering. We're under immense harm. Uh, you know, this is like a, a emblematic of you know broader systemic forces that are working against. And I'm looking at these students, and like I know for a fact, a lot of them were the sons and daughters of millionaires. Um, I remember asking one uh, young female student, basically, like, can you explain, like, why is this offensive? I don't understand. And she basically told me I was too privileged to understand why, you know, why Erica Christakis's email was offensive. Wow. And, you know, she was like some white girl who like went to private boarding school and like grew up in a rich neighborhood, and, but she was an activist and whatever. And so she was like kind of the, is it the T Titiana McGrath, yeah. like that archetype, yeah. uh, except like, you know, went to Yale and everything. And so, um, and that was like an interesting thing too, was like on campus, the whole identity politics idea was that if you are a member of these certain sociological categories, then therefore you are conferred legitimacy to opine on all of the social ills of the world and how to fix them and so on. But then the students also placed a great deal of importance on lived experience. You know, and if you live through something in your life, then therefore you're able to speak about certain things, you're an authority on those matters. But those two things seem to be, to me, contradictory that, you know, does it matter what you live through in your life or does, does it just matter like what you, what category you belong to? Isn't it interesting yeah. that you had 17 year squalor legitimacy when it comes to lived experience, but the number one thing which is ignored is class. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it was, I mean, was, yeah, they, because there are so few people who had my kind of background on campus and because so few students and graduates of these kinds of universities ever encounter it, it just isn't on their radar that they don't even think about. Mm. I mean, what's really interesting was that Yale is located in New Haven, which is a really low income kind of blue collar town. But, you know, they call it the Yale bubble where, you know, the students would only stick around in this very sort of, in, you know, enclosed area. But I lived off campus uh, in an apartment downtown 
And so I would walk through like a lot of poverty, a lot of squalor, a lot of addiction. And, you know, having, you know, 20 minutes earlier heard some student talk about how they were oppressed. And then I'd see, you know, real uh, poverty and real suffering. And I was just very difficult for me to sort of reconcile those things. And eventually, like at first, I tried to be sympathetic and tried to understand these, you know, these these grievances and the the students and the graduates and the faculty and all these, you know. And then eventually, I was like, these people have, you know, they they just completely don't understand. They have no connection with it whatsoever. And I'm some of it, I think, is legitimately malicious and duplicitous. I would see, for example. People claim that investment banks were emblematic of capitalist oppression and say that, you know, these are just, you know, these horrible entities. And then those same people would be at a recruitment session for Goldman Sachs like two weeks later. Mm. And I think like, you know, that to me was like that was a calculated move. <laughs> like and what I mean by that you is you don't like, want to work for them. Yeah. yeah. Like if, if they can basically eliminate their rivals for these prestigious internships, yeah. then all the better for them. And so I think some of it was tactical and calculated. But I think for a lot of people, it's just, um, you know, their hearts are in the right place or they're not really thinking that much about it. Um, and so, yeah, this was, uh, yeah, it was very strange. And then, and then the other thing is, so this is funny. I, um, I, I never knew my father growing up and I didn't know who he was or anything about him. Um, and it was only recently I took a 23 in me and got the results and found that my father, uh, was Mexican. And I went through, I, I called up our, our mutual friend, Razib Khan. I was like, hey, can you look at this with me and like help explain? And he's like, yeah, your dad was like, you know, Mexican. <laughs> he's like indigenous from North America with some Spanish ancestry. He's like, that's like a perfect, he's like, you grew up in LA, man. Like, what did you expect? <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay, so my dad was Mexican. But so when I was at Yale, before I had this information, I was hanging out in a dorm room with some students and it was a friend of mine he, who was a Mexican guy. And, you know, he, he was not like a, you know, he wasn't an activist. He wasn't like woke or whatever but i took a sombrero off the wall and put it on my head and he, he was joking around but he said something like uh, hey you know that's cultural appropriation you can't wear that sombrero i was like oh my bad you know just joking around. and then once i got these results back i was like wait a minute i'm allowed to wear i could wear that sombrero. <laughs> i'm allowed to wear a sombrero get, get me a like, poncho get me some fajitas and then and then the next thought i had was yeah the, the, but the next thought i had was like this just shows how like how stupid the whole thing is in the first place right like Someone from my background who didn't know my father, who could have been like, I could have believed, like if I had believed in the cultural appropriation thing, I could have bought into it. And now what am I supposed to think now that I have these DNA test results? And then, I, you know, just like the whole idea of like breaking people down into like these ethnic categories and they are or are not allowed to partake in this activity or that or the other. Um, like when when there are people out there who actually don't know who their fathers are or don't know um, they don't even know what cultural appropriation means, I just think like our our attention and our resources and our time are spent on such such frivolous nonsense. What is it? The the tyranny of small differences. What's that thing? Uh, yeah, the narcissism of small narcissism differences. of small differences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the smaller the differences between people, the bigger that they're blown up to be. Mm. When you have this relatively homogenous group of people at Yale, mm -hmm. it's all to do with, you can't speak to her like that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, why? Yeah. Like, she's she's exactly the same as you, just that one grandmother's half African-American or mm -hmm. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and everyone is from, like, the top 
probably the top decile of income. I mean, at Yale, there are more students from the top 1% of the income scale than from the entire bottom 60%. <laughs> like almost everybody is either, I mean, and, and like, yeah, this is an interesting point, the narcissism of small differences, where a lot of the anger I felt was, it was like between like someone at the 90th percentile income who they were angry at that 99th percentile, right? Like, you know, whatever, like someone from a family of whatever doctors and lawyers who are sort of upper middle class who are angry that the children of billionaires get to do something a little more expensive or a little bit more, you know, they get to go on a more expensive vacation or, you know, it, like all of that was was very much confined with people who are extremely affluent and well to do. And then there were, you know, a handful of people like me. I mean, I. I'm the only one who had like the kind of life that I had, but I knew some people from more kind of blue collar backgrounds. The underclass or, bona fides. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who are really just kind of like lower middle class, blue collar, but not not like, re- I mean, it's, the thing is like the way that the system works is, I think we might have talked about this last time about just how few people, um, like only oh, less than 3% of foster kids graduate from yes. university. Yes. Less than 3%. Um, and, you know, people who are from the bottom income quintile, it's it's 11%. And so- you know, really, there are more. You know, you're four times more likely to graduate from college if you're poor than if you live through the foster system. I mean, that's just how you know, the odds are so stacked against you. And so, yeah, I mean, even the people I knew who, so I think I was one of like eight veterans on campus. You know, people think of the military as like oh, kind of like people who maybe didn't go to college or people who had maybe sort of a more hard scrabble life, um, which is maybe to some extent true compared to people who go to expensive colleges, but. I was so I was one of eight military vets on campus. But even when I would interact with the other vets, uh, enlisted vets, um, in my cohort, so there were yeah eight in my cohort, and I would I would speak with them. I was like, oh, like basically all of them were raised by two parents, and like you know had a mom and a dad who did prioritize education and who you know kind of set good examples and you know all of those things. And I think yeah, we focus a lot on. I think the left focuses a lot on economics. I think certain strands of the right will focus on behavioral genetics. But there is this sort of cultural component here, too, that people don't really seem to, to want to touch. At, at some point, I will write, write this, this, this post up about sort of the, the limitations of sort of overextending the findings of, of behavioral genetics. I think like it's an important thing to, to know and to understand it and to sort of be fluent in, mm. but also to, to not discount the role of good habits, Custom sort of good good behaviors. I wrote this post. Um, Nobody is a prisoner of their IQ, yep. and I think that's an important uh, piece too. That it's true that the guys I grew up with, regardless of their parenting or whatever uh, their economic conditions were, they probably weren't going to be um, in a position to go to a very expensive, you know, selective university. But I think if they had been maybe taught different uh, values and inculcated different habits that, you know, two of them wouldn't have gone to prison. One of them was shot to death. Uh, I have friends working sort of menial, low-income jobs. I mean, that's the sort of typical outcome of people in that community. And I don't think, like, maybe we can't necessarily raise the ceiling for some people. We can definitely raise the floor, I think. Yeah. And so the last one of the last mm. episodes I did in this room was with Destiny. Mm. And he prompted this idea that I named two-step potential theory, which is a Hmm. blending of individual agency with real-world limitations. Your efforts Hmm. have tons of control over your outcome within the range that your world's limitations will allow. Behavioral genetics teaches us that on average around 50% of everything that we are psychologically is inherited from our parents. Boo, 50% of our outcomes are limited by our genetics. Hmm. Yes, but that also means that 50% of them are up to you, Hmm. which is great. 
this is another reason to not only compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today, but it's also a reason to try lots of things until you find the intersection of something that you love and something that you're good at. Mm. And um, yeah, it's like you can imagine that you have a bracket within which your potential sits. Mm-hmm. And that bracket is determined very heavily by outside forces. It's genetic predisposition, it's life circumstances, it's nutrition, it's upbringing, it's fucking unconscious trauma, it's all the epigenetics, it's all of that stuff. Mm. But your position within that window is almost exclusively on you. Now, that window also determines your ability to deploy your efforts, right? Mm. But that just moves the window. That doesn't move you within the window. Yeah. Well, yeah, James Clear has this nice line in Atomic Habits about how certain people become so preoccupied with their genetic limitations that they never try to actually reach them. I love that and that's, quote. Yeah, it's it's incredible, right? That And I think people understand this, at least in the context of like physical fitness, right? It's like, well, I'm never going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, so I'm just not going to go to the gym, which is like a completely uh, misguided way to think about things. Um, but yeah, I like this, like, yeah, that, that line about sort of behavioral genetics, but then also there is individual agency involved and you do have some control over this. I mean... I even I just wrote this post uh, about Machiavelli and how um, in the discourses on Livy, he writes about uh, how, you know, he basically says God doesn't want to do everything. He's like, some of it is up to you. you know, this, he was in a much more religious time than we are uh, living in Italy and, you know, Catholic Florence. And God doesn't want to do everything. But then but then he says, you know, basically. 50% of your outcomes are due to fortune, 50% of your outcomes are due to your own individual efforts, and fortune will favor you if you take action, these kinds of things. There's a there's a political philosopher, uh, Harvey Mansfield, who actually suggested that this, this transition uh, indicates that Machiavelli may have been an atheist, because at first he starts out saying, God doesn't want to do everything, and then he starts saying 50% is fortune and 50% is you. Well, where does that leave room for God? And Machiavelli may have been sort of subtly indicating to the reader that... You know, you can talk about God, you can think about God, but ultimately it's going to be luck and it's going to be you and that's all you or have. Or could have got his yeah. percentages wrong. Yeah, or, or, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So one of the things, I looked at your end of your review that you did, mm. and that actually reminded me that I hadn't done mine, uh, mm. as in the breakdown of what were the 10, I think you did the 10 most read free articles and mm. paid articles, yeah. which will still be up on your website and people can go and check that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that prompted me while I was back home in the UK that, fuck, I haven't done mine for Modern Wisdom. So mm. thank you for that. Um, but the best read article that you had last year was one mm. called How I Read. Yeah, And there's this great screenshot from Taleb in there. Taleb says, the opposite of reading is not not reading, but reading something like The New Yorker. I love that line so much. What do you think he means by that? Um, you know, Taleb is, so that, you know, there's a screenshot from Twitter. I think there's, you know, there is the sort of Twitter Taleb and then there's the the author Taleb. There's different, you know, there's different versions of him. But I, the way that I interpreted that, you know, the cantankerous tweet from Taleb was that, um, you know, if, if reading is defined as, you know, consuming useful, important, timeless information, uh, then, you know, reading, you know, the sort of hot takes in, you know, legacy media institutions, you know, often, you know, colored by bias, colored by the ideologies of our time that, you know, that's actually the opposite of getting useful, you know, important, timeless information. You're getting sort of unuseful, unimportant, uh, timely, you know, relevant maybe in the moment and then tomorrow people will forget all about it. And so I think that's kind of what he meant here. Um, and, you know, to, to be fair, like I, I, I wrote in there that I do enjoy reading The New Yorker sometimes, but but not as much as I enjoy that tweet. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What's your advice for people who want to become better readers? 
Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's a habit. You know, I've been sort of sort of t- you know touching on this on this uh, idea of discipline, of habit, of agency, and I think it's it's similar to a gym routine, right? Where when you're starting out, it's it's difficult. It's um, you know, sort of building it into your schedule. But then once you get going, um, it becomes much easier to just sort of set it and forget it that, the, you know, from these hours, from this time of day, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to the gym and here's the workout and here's the routine. And now you don't have to think about it anymore. That sort of discipline equals freedom idea. Um, and so I did that with reading. I've really been kind of a on and off reader since I was a kid. Um, I taught myself how to read in the foster homes and then reading became this kind of uh, like the soothing experience for me that I could sort of, you know, disconnect from the world and learn about information and to safety. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I would do that. Um, and so it's always been a sort of a companion for me. But, you know, with with, you know, everyone gets busy, everyone has a million things that they have to do, they have work, they have obligations. But for reading, yeah, it really does, you really have to treat it like a gym routine or like a job or something like an important habit, set time aside every day. And so this is what I was doing in in grad school was, you know, first thing in the morning, I'd have my cup of coffee and I'd try to read whatever, you know, five pages, 10 pages, 15 pages, whatever it is. Um, if people don't really have the reading habit at all, I do like James Clear's idea of like, start from like the lowest unit of effort possible. Like sentence. Yeah, sentence. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, it would be really weird if you started from the word level, but yeah, a sentence level or a paragraph level. You know, ideally, you could get a page in, uh, you know, something substantive um, and then build your way from there, uh, whether it's a chapter, whether it's a book and so on. And I think, yeah, breaking it down in that way is helpful because, you know, I speak to some people who want to read and they're like, okay, I'm going to try to finish this book this week or I'm going to try to finish this book this month. And I think like thinking in those terms isn't really helpful. I think you have to break it down further of instead of a book a month, I'm going to read three pages a day or 10 pages a day, and then you'll finish the book when it gets finished. Um the other thing is, if a book is uninteresting to you or it's not holding your attention, to just let it go. You know, it's fine. You don't have to read it just because you bought it or because you rented it from the library or what have you. Or because it's okay everybody to... else says that it's good or because you yeah. read on Twitter that it's really informative yeah. or that you want to tell other people that you've read it, that they've read it as well. <laughs> right. And yeah, you don't, I mean, that's one of the, that was one of the things that I learned too was, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the sort of chattering class people, they will not read the books that they claim to have read, but they'll read reviews. And so if you want to just like know about a book to participate in a conversation, just go read three or four reviews online. Uh, and that'll sort of give you the highlights of what people are talking about or what, what the takeaways are that people care about from the book. But if you really want to do a deep dive, if you really want to understand a book, then yeah, you have to read the whole thing cover to cover, but you know, take it slow, do what you're comfortable with. If you want to skip around, that's fine too. That if a particular chapter title sticks out at you or seems to be especially provocative or interesting, start with that chapter first, and then you can go back. I would recommend for most books, especially most older books, to actually read the um, the preface, the you know author's note, the foreword, because for a lot of sort of older texts, you know, I mentioned Machiavelli earlier. You know, it it does help that those, you know, the 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 prologues and all those kinds of things, they will sort of contextualize the book and sort of explain to some degree why is this book important, why do people care about it, what's been the sort of commentary, a summary of of this author's influence throughout the centuries. And so I do recommend reading that and not just skipping to chapter one. Um, and yeah, I mean, there, there are other things too that um, you can read multiple books simultaneously. There's no rule in place. I think we learned from school that one book at a time, you know, read this and hear the, the, the formula for how you read. 
Um, but actually you can do whatever you want, skip around, read two pages of this book, put it down, mm. you know, take a week off, read this other book for a while. I'll do that when I'm on vacation, I'll just start a new book. Even if I'm working on three other books back home, I'll just pick up a new book off the shelf and go on vacation. And that'll be my vacation book. I do weird things like that. And for me, it, it's helpful. Um, and, and the other thing is it's helpful to take notes too. Um, whether it's in the book itself, people get mad at me sometimes on Twitter. They're like, oh, you're defacing that book. Like, oh, you fucking bought it. Yeah, it's my book. Exa exactly. Yeah. It's not like I'm vandalizing, you know, it's, there's a, there's a really good book, um, called how to read a book called Mortimer Adler, uh, by Mortimer Adler. And, um, he's, um, he was a professor at the university of Chicago, uh, in the mid mid late 20th century but he wrote this book basically like explaining the different forms of reading the different types of reading and this is where i picked up a lot of this information about it's okay to skip around what are your goals for reading um break down the habit but one of the points he's made is that no one mis you know, he, he makes this analogy he says no one mistakes the uh what do they call it in 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 the composers of music like the sheet the sheet music or something no one confuses that for the melody itself right it's like no one's you know it's not the paper is not sacred the ideas on them are sacred mm. and most authors would be flattered if someone was so invested in the book and the topic that they they're engaging their with. own fucking yeah and the marginalia thing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. like and yeah i mean it's it's you see this with like if you visit museums you know cambridge they have like darwin's notes or his scribblings of other people's texts and you can see like he was reading and he was making notes and and he was doing this in a time where uh, it was actually harder to get books than it is now. Um, and so engage with the book. Um, try to understand what the points are in the book. Don't just, I mean, this is something that I used to do. Even though I was a reader, I didn't really, I didn't really um, try to understand what the book was about before I started it. It was like, oh, here's an interesting title. And I'd read the back of it and it would be, oh, it's about X, Y, Z. And I, oh, okay, I'll just start reading it and sort of fumble my way through rather than think about, okay, where's this author coming from? What point is he trying to make? Uh, why is this book important? Try to take that sort of meta-level perspective as well so that you can really understand where he's coming from and break down the points. If you really want to, um, especially for more modern social science books, one thing you can do is essentially just read the first and last chapter or the preface in the last <laughs> chapter because, you know, that's just the way, that's just the style of reading or style of writing now where, you know, publishers want you to just basically summarize the idea at the beginning and the end for busy people, for tired people. What's this book about? You know, like, what are you going to talk about? And then at the end, say, here's what I talked about. Yeah. And that'll sort of give you, you know, maybe 50%. What a of, funny hack. Yeah, That's yeah. so funny. What about uh, revisiting things? Because your recall mm. seems to be quite impressive, which is something that people want. Mm. They want to, reading something and then not being able to recall what you read is kind of in some ways, mm. like not having read it at all. Mm. Yeah, well, I think taking notes, highlighting, and then what I'll do is like, you know, I'll have like a Google Doc or some kind of uh, note-taking app where I'll like cut and paste if it's like Kindle version or if it's the paper version, I'll, sometimes I'll just post it on Twitter um, and then that'll be like the search function where I can find it later. Um, <laughs> or I can, um, yeah, I'll just- you Better like, hope you know, that you don't get over. deleted from Twitter. I know, that would be- It's not the access to the audience, it's my own archive <laughs> of my <laughs> yeah, notes. Exactly, yeah, damn it. That would be, that would be rough, yeah, I, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I think like, sharing it in that way, and that's actually how my Twitter started, was me just sharing notes and things I was reading. That's like how the initial sort of growth occurred was, you know, I was in, I think it was an undergrad when I started it in 20, yeah, 2017. 
um, posting my notes online and my highlights and underlines and um, and so yeah, I think like pinpointing the interesting points, doing like a very brief summary, even if it's literally one sentence, preferably a paragraph. If you finish a book, like what did you get from this book? What are two or three things that you remember right now, having just finished read it? Because if you if you have just finished reading a book, the most important or interesting or provocative points will be at the top of your mind. Mm. Just try to paraphrase it. Don't even go back to the book and say, well, what did he actually say? Try to say, what did I remember? Type yeah. it out. Try to use that that forced recall. And that'll help to um, to to sort of get it into long-term memory. And then every once in a while, like if I'm flying on a plane or if I'm you know, in waiting in line or something, usually I'll read a book, but sometimes I'll actually just revisit my notes and say, you know, what did that book say? Or what was that point? And do like a control F if I just want to read about whatever, mating psychology or what have you, I'll just do the, the control F and okay, here are my notes on mating psychology from David Buss or this book or that book. And that'll help me to just sort of connect the dots and, and, uh, and, and also help to provide material for my Substack, Which is most important, obviously. <laughs> right. Rob, I appreciate the hell out of you. It's very good to speak to you again. I'm so happy that this book's finally out. It's taken forever. Yeah, it's been five years plus, yeah, yeah. It's in the making. Yeah, so. that this has been going, and then it's been ready to be published for a good while as well, and you've been sort of held at the starting line. So mm -hmm. uh, where should people go? They want to check out the book, the Substack, the everything else. Where do um, yeah, they can get my book, Troubled, uh, A Memoir of Foster Care, Family, and Social Class. That's, you know, wherever wherever books are sold. And yeah, uh, follow me on Twitter at Rob K. Henderson, Substack, robkhenderson.com. Hell yeah. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, Chris.